0: You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 15. Welcome, everybody. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing how to lead with a story with Paul Smith. We have a ton of great content today. We'll be covering top 10 stories leaders must tell, common storytelling mistakes, why telling stories is much better than giving advice, and much, much more. In times of great change, we need great leaders those willing to step up to take responsibility to create a vision and inspire others to join them in fulfilling that vision a key part of that is having conversations with yourself and those you lead that's what the show is about better conversations for better leaders hey everybody and welcome to key conversations for leaders i'm your host john ryan and today we have a very special guest paul smith Paul is one of the world's leading experts in business storytelling. He's one of Inc. magazine's top 100 leadership speakers of 2018, a storytelling coach, and a best-selling author of several books, including *The 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell*, *Sell with a Story*, *Lead with a Story*, and *Parenting with a Story*. Paul holds an MBA from the Wharton School, is a former consultant at Accenture, and a former executive and 20-year veteran of the Procter & Gamble Company. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hey, John, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. And thank you for being here. Paul, I wanted to start out by asking, because you're you're clearly a master at storytelling, you know, why is it that you think storytelling works so well as a leadership tool?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm sure there's dozens of reasons, but probably the most important one is that it turns out that we humans don't make the logical, rational decisions that we'd like to think we do right? There's been a, a lot of cognitive science, you know, in the last couple of decades behind this, but it turns out many, if not most of our decisions are made subconsciously in an emotional processing part of the brain and then justified logically and rationally a few nanoseconds later in a more conscious, logical thinking part of the brain. So so we leave our decision-making processes thinking that we've made them for all those rational, logical reasons. But the truth is Our subconscious brain kind of, you know, made the decision on a more, you know, primitive emotional level for us, and the rest of our brain is just trying to catch up. And so it it turns out that if you want to influence what people think and feel and do, you know, in other words, leadership or sales or marketing or influence in general, you need to talk to both parts of the brain. And storytelling is just uniquely well-qualified to reach both parts instead of only that logical, rational thinking part that our normal conversation uh, appeals
0: to. I think that's a really great way to say it because I, mean, I think what I've heard said before, like you said, people make decisions emotionally, but then they look back after the fact and they try to justify them yeah. logically. Exactly. So as a storyteller, you're really communicating to their subconscious mind and priming them, influencing them, connecting to their drives and values. And and influencing them on, on sounds like the deepest level, would you say?
1: Yes, and, and there are lots of other reasons as well. I mean, stories are more memorable and um, they, they create a context and put your idea into a, a real concrete context as well. So there, there are other reasons, but the, the decision-making process of humans, I think is probably one of the most compelling ones to, to use stories. Now, as human
0: beings we we tend we think that we're logical and rational, and we want the data. Is that really necessary, or do you do that only to satisfy the conscious mind?
1: so I, I think both are necessary. Uh, and, and I, I think um certainly in business, most of the decisions should have some quantitative, you know, uh, logical, rational reason behind them. Uh, but the people making those decisions are humans, not computers, right? So, uh, and humans, humans need some emotional content in order to make good decisions. So uh, uh, sharing stories that help people, uh, help connect with their subconscious emotional mind isn't just some trick that you're playing. It's, it's a necessary part of human cognition. In fact, we have a word for people who fail to properly consider the emotional impact of their decisions. Do you know what that word is? No. Sociopath. and that's not not a joke i mean literally sociopaths are people who have no emotional you know cognition of the impact and the 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 consequences of their behavior that's why they can just kill people and not care about it because they just they don't care they don't have any emotional processing so emotional processing is a necessary and legitimate part of human cognition and if you if you're not sharing stories you're depriving your audience of the ability for that part of their brain to, to, to do what it's supposed to do.
0: Well, well speaking of which I, I know I'd, I'd read in, I think it was psychology today that said that CEOs actually have the highest percentage from a profession perspective of people who are in that sociopath, psychopath, whatever that is, <laughs> who have a hard time dealing with emotions. So do, does this storytelling tool still work in terms of managing up and influencing people who have that deficit, if you will?
1: Yeah, so so fortunately, uh, I I bet if you look up the statistics, you'll find that sociopaths are like two or three percent of the population, and among the CEO ranks, maybe they're four or five or six percent. Sure. Okay. (laughs) The good news is, ninety-five percent of us are still normal (laughs) human beings, and this stuff will work. So, is it possible that there's a tiny percentage of people who stories don't work on? Yes, but you should just avoid those people in general anyway. (laughs)
0: I love that. I love it. And I think you're right. It was like four or 5%. It wasn't like 50%. So that's not the majority of the people we're dealing with. Yeah. And in, in your research, you actually interviewed hundreds of CEOs in order to really reverse engineer what works in storytelling and also what doesn't. Was there anything that you learned in the process that really surprised you?
1: Mm. Yeah, well, several things. Um the first thing that comes to mind is the sh- sheer diversity of situations where leaders find themselves in where they could and should be telling a story. I mean, I went into the, you know, the original research for my first book, which is eight years ago, um, thinking, you know, there's a limited number of places or times in a leader's day where they would need to tell a story, you know, probably when they need to set a vision or uh, when they're trying to lead change or something, you know, I, I, I already thought of a few situations, but I just, I found an enormous um, number of situations where leaders could and should be telling stories, you know, helping uh, helping their their peers find passion for their work or their subordinates find passion for their work, or teaching people to be better problem solvers, uh, helping people uh, be more creative and innovative in their jobs um, getting people to accept feedback as a gift as as opposed to as you know, some kind of punishment. you know, I mean, there's just so many, you know, and i tried I tried documenting them in my first book, and I think I got to like twenty twenty one or twenty two different leadership challenges where leaders should be telling stories. My publisher was just like, dude stop. <laughs> like, <laughs> like w- save the rest for books number two, three or four, or something, but that's just that's way plenty for one book and 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 I, my fifth book just came out, and so I, I'm just continuing to find more more uh, uses for storytelling than I ever thought I would find
0: well congratulations on that upcoming fifth book and and you really I can tell you found that storytelling is such a universal tool that can be used in a variety of contexts and one of the ways you do that is helping not only individuals but companies identify you know what is their company story can you talk a little bit about you know what that means
1: yeah, so, so first of all, a uh, uh, clarification, because that's a very common question I get. Um, and most people ask that question because they assume that, that all companies have a story or every you know, brand has a story. And I think that's rather limiting. Like s- companies should have lots of stories. Like you, sh- you shouldn't just have one story. I mean, that would be like saying, well, John Ryan, what's your story? Well, what on earth do you mean by that? Do you, you <laughs> want to know where I was born? Like, or do you want to know where I went to college? Or do you want to know what I did yesterday? Like, companies, businesses, organizations, brands have dozens of stories. So when you ask about a company story, you have to specify what do you mean by that? And a lot of times what they mean is their founding story, right? The story of when the company got founded. And that is a very, very important uh story for all companies to be able to tell. Uh, but it's only one. So So now that I've clarified that, let me have you remind me what, what the original question. So yeah, tell us more. I was looking for more like what
0: is an an example of a company story? And it sounds like the founding story is, Mm. is one of them. Yeah. What are some other examples? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, well, well, let me start by giving an example of a founding story. So you can see what that kind of looks like. So one of my favorite, uh, is about a guy named, uh, Eric. Um, and he, uh, uh, he was a bike rider, a cyclist, a really serious one, not professional, but he's the kind of guy that would go out and ride a hundred miles on the weekend. Right. Um, I, you know, I ride 20 miles and I'm ready, you know, to call it a day. Um, so, uh, he was, and this is back in the eighties and he was out biking with a friend of his on one of these, you know, 150 mile treks and he's in San California. And they they, they make it to the top of this hill. They're about a hundred miles into this 150 mile bike ride. And they've been bringing those, uh, cereal bars or power bar, you know, bars with them that you have to eat, you know, because if you ride that far, you'll burn through a lot of calories and you, you got to eat fairly often. And he pulls out, you know, what would, what would have been like number five of six, you know, cereal bars that he was gonna have to eat that day, right, on this bike ride. And he just looks at it disgusted. <laughs> like, there is no way I'm gonna put another one of these in my mouth. Like, they're just, you know, they're all the same, they're sticky, they're hard, they're, you know, they're kind of gross, they sit in your stomach like a rock and I'm just, I just, I cannot eat one more of these. But you know, I got 50 miles more to ride, and I'm famished. And so he 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 just says, "I'm not going to eat it." Now he puts it back in his pocket, and they start riding down the hill for the last 50 miles. And, and and as he's going down this hill with his buddy, he says, "You know what? There is just no reason why we have to eat this junk, right?" Like he said, and and he owned a a bakery, by the way. And he said, "I can make a better cereal bar, a better you know energy bar." than this or I bet I can you know and by the end of that ride he'd convinced himself to make one so he goes home and he actually is his, he calls his mom because his mom taught him how to bake to begin with and he literally goes over to mom's kitchen and they start throwing some things together and trying different ingredients and over the course of the next six months he comes up with what he thinks is a much better you know energy bar for cyclists and runners and people like that than this one that everybody'd been eating uh, and he ends up launching it and it's a huge success and Um, And, but as he's launching it, he has to decide what to name it. Um, And he'd already named his bakery after his mom and his grandmother. So he decided to name the cereal bar after his dad, his dad's name was Clifford. And that's how the cliff bar was born. So that's the founding story of the cliff bar company, right? It's because Eric was out on a bike ride and was disgusted at the power bar that he had the fifth power bar he had to eat. Um, And so you know, stories like that, the, the founding story of a company isn't something like this. Well, you know, we started 20 years ago with uh, two employees in the garage and $500. And, and today, we're a Fortune 500 company and in six co- countries around the world. And, you know, that's not a founding story. That's a summary of 20 years of your business, right? The founding story is a story about that one moment that the, co- the idea for the company hits somebody, you know, because nobody ever ever quit their job, risked everything to start a new business for a boring reason, right? There's always an exciting reason behind it. So the founding story is just that little first part of the company's beginning, the founding of the company. So, So that's a founding story
0: thank you so much for for that's a great example and it's one obviously we all know and um my my son loves the z bars which is the new kid version which is amazing and they've done huge obviously huge probably the most recognized you know next to power bar and things like that out there and it came from that that story so rather than the 20 years of data which you could allude to you're going to remember that story of the bike ride and looking for how do I make something better than already exists. So is for me, what I, when I get out of that is like, Hey, look for need. And what could I do that I'd be interested in to change my life and those of others? What is it that you feel about maybe that example in particular that sets that apart from, I know obviously the emotionality comes into it, the memorability of that comes into it. What are some things that you look at that determine what is a good founding story versus a more mediocre one?
1: Yeah, so a couple of things with with that one uh, that you didn't already mention. So you already mentioned a couple of them. So the you know the the emotional moment where he realizes you know the emotional connection. Secondly, mm-hmm. or maybe first, um, the fact that he's solving a problem. Like he had a problem. Mm-hmm. He, those cereal bars were just disgusting, <laughs> right? And and he didn't like that, and you probably don't either. And so the, the original ones thirty years ago. And so he he wanted to invent a new one. Um, but a couple other things about that one uh, I, I think that are worth mentioning. Um, one is that. Uh, notice the surprise ending, right? So so you said we all know that story. But the truth is most people don't know the founding story of the Cliff Bar Company. They know the founding story of Apple or Hewlett Packard or you know uh, Michael Dell in his college dorm room or Mark Zuckerberg at Harvard inventing Facebook. So there are a few founding stories that people know. Most people have never heard of the founding. they know what the Cliff Bar is, but they never heard of the founding story. And so most people listening to that story, didn't know that it was about the Cliff Bar Company until the very end, when I said the guy's dad's name was Clifford, and so he named the bar, the the cereal bar, the Cliff Bar. That was intentional. So, like, I could have told you, yeah, well, let me give you an example of the founding story of the Cliff Bar Company, and then I told you the mm-hmm. same story, and it would it would have been a good story, but mm-hmm. it's a better story because there was a surprise ending, and I created that surprise on purpose by not telling you the name of the company up front and only telling you at the end, when I explained that it was his dad's name, right? So there are are things you can do with crafting a story to make them more interesting, more appealing, have more surprise, have more of an an emotional engagement. So so that's not an accident. You you craft these stories intentionally following a, a pattern that is proven to make for successful storytelling. And please
0: forgive me, I did not mean to imply that I knew. I didn't know it was Cliff, actually. I meant to say I knew. We all know Cliff Company, the the Cliff Bar Company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Please forgive me. Because no, I didn't. Only until you said, name after the father, that I'm sure everyone's light bulbs are going off. (gasps) It's got to be Cliff Bars. And then we get that payoff at the end. So I love it. You're really becoming a storyteller, just like a screenwriter or a novelist, Mm -hmm. and, and finding out what's the best way to... Captivate, create conflict and challenge, which I know is, is part of your process too, mm. and and then getting people invested in the story, and then having that payoff at the end, and then getting them to walk away with a whole bunch of cool ideas about how they can apply this to their life. So the founding story is one of them. What are some other stories that that leaders should be telling as part of their day to day?
1: Yeah. So uh, so that's a great question. Now that I've told you, you know, I, I, here I found these dozens and dozens of types of stories that people told. So um, I, I finally made some time to sit down and think of, well, what are the most important ones? Like what are the top 10, right? There's surely some of them are more important than others. And so my my last book is actually the 10 stories great leaders tell where I, I, I finally sat down to do that. Okay, so I'll just, I'll spoil the whole thing for you and tell you, I'll give you the, the table of contents <laughs> right now, right? So here are the most important 10 stories I think every leader ought to be able to tell. All right, and the first four go together because they're about setting the direction for the organization. So that's where we came from. So that's that founding story we just talked about why we can't stay there, so that's a case for change story, where we're going, which is a vision story, and how we're gonna get there, which is a, a strategy story. All right. so you can imagine if a leader can tell those four stories, they're much more likely to get the organization to go where you want them to go because you can tell them where you came from, why you can't stay, where you're going, and the strategy to get there. All right, so the next four go together as well, but they're more about who we are as an organization. So that's what we believe, so that's a, a, a corporate values story. Who we serve. So that's a, a customer story, a story about the customer, so everybody at your company can have a personal human understanding of who you're ultimately working for. Uh, what we do for our customers. So that's a classical sales story or customer success story, basically a story so that people can understand, you know, that what you what you do that's so awesome that people should pay you to do it for them, right? Um and then number eight is how we're different from our competitors. So I call that a marketing story because marketing is generally about differentiating yourself from your competitors. So so if you think about those four, if you can tell those four stories, you can easily explain who your company is, who you serve, what you do for them, and how you're different from your competitors, right? So if you're keeping up, that's eight. So there are two left. Uh, And those kind of go together as well, but they're more personal to you, the leader. So that's why I lead the way I do. So that's a personal leadership philosophy story and why you should want to work here. So you, the person you're talking to, right? Uh, so so that's a recruiting story, you know, and those stories are important because every leader's job is to bring in talented people and get them to stay in, at the company and follow your leadership, right? That's not just the job of HR or recruiting, the recruiting department or something, right? So so those are my top 10. Now, there are dozens of others and you and I could probably argue all day about which ones should, you know, be in the top 10. But I, I think most people will hear that list and think, yeah i I need I need all of those ten stories and and you do
0: i I think you're right the mo as you share that, thank you so much for sharing that for 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 me and also for the listeners um because it's so simple, right so it's it's the company story first. it's the client story that we serve and then it's about your story and the, the employee story mm. and and if you have those, obviously you don't have all the dozens and dozens that exist but you have a pretty good start. Yeah. That's an incredible start. And I imagine those stories need to be repeated. And that's what is the basis, I guess, of culture, would you say?
1: Yeah, it is. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of the criteria I use to pick these 10 stories is that they can be repeated and or need to be repeated a lot. And for a long period of time, like there are some stories that you'll tell that you'll maybe only need to tell once or twice because the problem you were trying to solve got solved and you never need to tell that story again but if you think about these stories they're stories you, you you'll be telling for years if not decades like your company founding story well that should never change right if your company only gets founded once so you could tell that story for decades and never change your vision story well your vision is going to change but only every like five or six or eight years right your vision story shouldn't change every month so you can invest time in getting that story right because you can tell it for years before it ever needs to change. So that was part of my criteria in selecting those. And specifically to your question, yes, uh, culture uh, and values in an organization are really defined by the stories people tell about other people in the company. So the people who, you know, embodied the right culture and the right values and were, were rewarded for it, and the other people who behaved in a different way and got you know punished or fired <laughs> for it right i mean those are the stories that that help people decide how they're going to behave because nobody reads the rule book right but they do listen to the the stories that people tell about other people in the office
0: yeah i think i think that makes sense and and you're right there's there's win stories and struggle stories and they both have value i think the application becomes really apparent when you put all those ten together and you think about the importance in the dna the culture the values the beliefs and the vision stories etc one of the challenges I mentioned you probably come across is do you ever have people saying I'm just not a good storyteller and, and I tell stories and people get bored or they look like they're deer in the headlights. What do you say to folks like that, who are struggling on like the delivery aspect perhaps?
1: Yeah. Well, so people tell me that all the time (laughs) and and, and because that's what I do for a living is teach people how to be better storytellers. And, And, and that's the first barrier they have to overcome is thinking, you know what i'm just i'm just not a naturally gifted storyteller so i guess i never will be and that's just not true right i mean um storytelling is an art like music or dance or you know poetry or something so clearly there are going to be people who are naturally born with a better you know talent for that but just because you're not nat- a naturally gifted musician doesn't mean you can't learn to play the guitar but you'd need to take lessons right <laughs> i mean you can't just buy a guitar and put it by your bed and hope that by osmosis, you'll learn to play the guitar, right? You'd hire somebody who knew how to play the guitar and have them teach you. Uh, So, and it's the same with storytelling. If you're not great at it, well, that's fine. You could, but you can learn. Hire somebody, read a book, take a class, watch some online videos, you know, learn. Take it as a a skill, just like any other skill set in business that you need to be successful and go learn it and, and you will.
0: Are there any mistakes that you see that leaders make when crafting a story or delivering a story?
1: Yeah, well, lots of them. So some of the uh, more common and interesting ones are uh, happen right up front, though, right when they're about to tell a story. Um, So uh, a a couple of them are uh, never apologize or ask permission to tell a story at work. I mean, you've seen that happen all the time, right? You'll, You'll be in a meeting and somebody raise their hand and say, well, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, but can I I, can I just tell a quick story? I promise it'll just take a minute. Mm -hmm. Right now, what does that communicate? Do you think to the rest of the people in the audience about how important they think the story is? Oh, yeah, it undermines it completely. Right. Yeah. Clearly, they don't think it was as important as what was going to be said anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they're apologizing and asking permission to tell it. Right. So Mm -hmm. and if you do think or if you don't think that your story is as important as what was going to be said, like by all means, like don't tell it, right? But if you do think your story is important, just tell it. No apology, no asking permission, right? Leaders don't ask permission to lead; they just lead. Never ask permission to tell a leadership or a sales or business or marketing story. Like you're just doing your job. Just tell it. Um, the other one that that I see all the time is uh, don't tell people that you're going to tell them a story just tell them the story right so i mean there are a lot of people who have a negative visceral reaction to hearing the words let me tell you a story you know because they they, they think that you're you're going to tell them some long boring 15 minute irrelevant story or or you're going to lie to them because you know some people telling stories means lying if you grew up where i grew up you know so there are a lot of connotations to using the word story that just doesn't sit well with a lot of people at work uh, now uh, the analogy i use though is b- because they like the story. If you tell them a great story, they'll, they'll appreciate it, but they won't. If you tell them, you're going to tell them a story. So the best analogy I've thought of is it's kind of like a a business person at work telling them you're going to tell them a story is kind of like telling a five-year-old kid it's time to stop playing outside and come inside and take a bath. Like in both cases, they don't want to, (laughs) but once they're in it, they love it and don't want to get out. Right. Once the kid's in the bath, he's having fun and playing. He doesn't want to get out. And same with a story for a grown-up. Once they're in the story, they're they're enjoying it. And they're listening to it. And they're learning and they're engaged. They don't want to get out. But if you tell them ahead of time, that's what's going to happen. They're usually not interested. So don't spoil it by telling them it's time to come in and take a bath.
0: Well, I know you also have a book on, obviously, uh, parents and telling stories as well. And transitions are a huge thing if if you have children. We have a seven-year-old, and they love both activities, but it's getting from one to the other. So that transition into the story, don't apologize, don't ask permission, jump right in. Um, and don't, don't telegraph. Hey, I'm going to tell you a story I'm hearing. What is a, what is a good way? Like how would you transition into a story? What are some of your
1: favorites? Yeah. yeah. So w- w- use what I call is a hook, right? So it's basically it's just a sentence or two that lets your audience know that if you'll listen to me for the next two or three minutes, I'm going to tell you something that's important to you, not to me, but to you. So for example, what that might sound like is, Um, maybe you and I are meeting and, and, uh, you're telling me about a problem you're having and I want to give you some advice in the form of a story. I might say, wow, that is a tough problem. Let me tell you what I did five years ago when I had your job and I ran into that problem. And then I start telling the story like just that one or two sentences. Like if, if somebody said that to you, gosh, that's a tough problem. Let me tell you what I did when I ran into that problem. Do you want to hear what they got to say next? Of course I do. Of course you do, right? Like and yeah. you, you don't know if they handled it well or if they completely failed because they haven't told you the story yet. But it doesn't matter because you're gonna learn either way something you should go do or something you should avoid doing. Right. So that is a hook. And so you're not asking permission, you're not apologizing for telling the story, you're not telling them you're gonna tell a story. You just say something like that. Guy, let me tell you what I did when I ran into that problem. Or um you know if if they're asking you for an example of something you might say uh uh yeah well let me just give you an example and then you tell the story instead of yeah well let me tell you a story about this that's not the way to start.
0: I love that you just breaking down uh, on the fly here, the, um, Hey, wow, that sounds like a really big problem. So you're acknowledging the issue they're dealing with, and then you're establishing credibility because I've already been through this. And let me just tell you, not ask permission. Let me just tell you about this. And now they're like, yeah, because you've established that you have credibility, you've been through it. You clearly have, cause I can learn from you either from a success perspective or a failure perspective. I'm already hooked. I'm already hooked on what you, what you want to say. With advice, because you said giving advice to a story, and I think it's a great way to do that for, for many reasons. Giving advice is like, here's what you should do. A story is a different tact. A story is more open. Like How do you differentiate that to yourself and, or do people intuitively get that distinction there?
1: Uh, uh, no, well, some people do like you just did, but I, that's a conscious part of what I teach people with storytelling is use a story not to tell people what to do, but to let them realize what they should do. do. So a story is an opportunity for them to learn the lesson themselves instead of you hitting them over the head with the lesson. So um, in in storytelling, I tell people, there there are eight questions your story needs to answer and we can go through them if if you'd like. But um, near the end of that list is what's the lesson in the story? And what I tell people is if you tell the story well, you, the storyteller, don't have to answer question number seven, which is what's the lesson in the story, because your audience will have answered it for themselves. And that's a far better way for them to learn than you telling them. Now, if they if they learn the wrong lesson, then you've got to redirect them a little bit and tell them what the real lesson is. But nine times out of 10, they'll get it. And people are far more passionate about pursuing their ideas than they are about pursuing your ideas, right? And that's part of the beauty of storytelling is it lets people realize and learn their own lessons from the story so that it's their idea now, not your idea. And that way they'll be more motivated to act on it. And that's what you want. You want a story helps you turn your idea into their idea.
0: I I love that. I think you're going to get a lot less resistance than when it's their idea, rather than you beating them over the head, like you said, making that happen. Um, Timing as well. So the the cliff bar story and that twist at the end, that was only a couple of minutes. Is there a, I mean, it seems like a 20 minute story is going to be on the extreme end, and you're probably going to, you have to be really captivating to make that happen. Is there an ideal amount of time that, that you want people to get in and get out?
1: Yeah. So for leadership stories, a typical leadership story is around three or four minutes long. Okay. It's not 10 or 15, you know, or 20 minutes. Um, so I, I've, you know, I've seen them as short as 20 or 30 seconds. I've seen them as long as six or seven minutes, but three or four minutes is kind of the the sweet spot. Um, sales and marketing stories tend to be a lot shorter. You know, I mean, you can watch a television commercial in 15 or 30 seconds, right? Um, not, not all of them are real stories, but many of them are. Um, But even sales stories that salespeople would tell over the desk, you know, from a buyer tend to be one or two minutes long, um, as opposed to three or four minutes long. And, And let's see if you can figure out there's a fairly obvious reason why. Why do you think leadership stories are about twice as long as sales stories?
0: I, a prestige, actually. The leader is in charge, and I think you have to pay attention.
1: Exactly. Yeah, because the leader can get away with it, right? <laughs> because they're the <laughs> boss. Yeah, when you're the salesperson in the buyer's office, you ain't the boss, right? They're, yeah. So, Right. Uh, yes, they tend to be shorter. But in both cases, notice, they're pretty short. I mean, it's two or three or four yeah. minutes. That's all we're talking about.
0: Okay, cool. And thanks for the quiz. I appreciate it. It's awesome. Put me in the spot. Oh, yay. So do questions come into play at all? Or is it more one way? Or or does it get dynamic in in the discussion of
1: stories? Well, so the story itself is is one way. Once you've started telling a story, it's typically, I'm going to talk for the next two minutes and tell you a story. And then you're going to respond and tell me what you learned from the story Right. Because I, I, I'm telling you the story to teach you some kind of a lesson and I need to check and make sure that you learn the right lesson so that I don't have to tell you what the lesson is, because if, if I'm just going to tell you what the lesson is, I don't need to tell you the story. Actually, just tell you what to do. Right. Um, so there there is questioning before you tell the story. So you need to find out you need to ask enough questions so you know what story you need to tell. Right. And then after you've told the story, you're ask, you need to ask them, what did you learn from the story? What do you think you'll go do now? So you're, you're asking to see what they learned, if they learned the right lesson. But during the two minutes, it's, it's, it's your turn to talk. Um, and and there, by the way, there are questions that you need to ask, that you can ask to get your audience to tell you a story, as opposed to to give you short answer questions. And so it's important to learn the right questions to ask, to elicit stories from people, not just to tell them.
0: What would that look like if you don't mind sharing a little bit yeah. more about eliciting a, a story from an employee or maybe even a customer? I'm not sure. Yeah,
1: so if you had a customer yeah. that you wanted to find out you know, what their biggest problem is right now so that you can help them solve it with you know, whatever it is that you sell, you could ask them a closed-ended question like, uh, what's your biggest problem right now? <laughs> yeah, and, and they would answer it in just a, one or two words. They might say, oh, warehousing. Warehousing is our biggest problem. Okay, well, can you fix that? I don't know. How do you know? Like, you don't know much about the problem. But if you ask the question this way, tell me about the moment you realized your biggest problem was your biggest problem. Oh, well, that would have have been last. Biggest customer called in a a last minute order, a huge order. And we went out to the warehouse and we couldn't find the product they were after. So we had to schedule a special production run. Uh, We made all of it just in time. We expedited the shipment to the customer at a huge upcharge and we got it there just in time. And then we went out to the warehouse and found the product that they were looking for right where it should have been all along. Like, okay, now you know what they mean by a warehousing problem. It's an inventory location problem, (laughs) right? Um, So asking questions that elicits stories is far better for you because you'll learn more. You'll have more insight into the real problem than just saying, oh, warehousing is our biggest problem or inventory is our biggest problem or even inventory management is our biggest problem. Well, what does that really mean? Give me an example of that being a problem, right? So those are the kind of questions you want to ask.
0: So getting them to walk through also helps them to reconnect to the pain that they're having and the problem they're facing, which allows you – to then have more impetus to actually work with you if you assuming you can, of course solve the problem,
1: yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but you you just had them uh, what was the word you, you used pain building you, you've they've re-experienced essentially they're yes. re experiencing the pain point by talking through it, so yeah, they're a little bit more primed to to want your solution. <laughs>
0: Because you're right, because the chunked up, we have a warehousing problem is intellectual. And that's that's the rational mind. It's right. not the emotional mind versus thinking about the frustration of having to take time out, go to the warehouse and see where it's there and recognizing there's a bigger problem And by recapping that moment you discovered that you have that big problem. Right. I love that. So I just out of curiosity, I, and this kind of seems a little bit backwards from a sequencing perspective, how did you discover the power of storytelling? What was your, I don't know if it's a founding moment for you, but like maybe a turning point for you in terms of how you realized that, wow, the really a better way to communicate rather than telling people what to do is to share stories.
1: Yeah. So one of my earliest, uh, well, well, some of it was just watching just, I mean, I spent 20 or 30 years now in the business world and you, know, you have leaders that you admire the most and that you want to work for. And I, at one point over, you know, 15 years ago, I finally dawned on me that, one of the skill sets those leaders had that I admired the most was this ability to tell a compelling story. And, and, and they hadn't taught me that. Like I went to, I got an MBA and they didn't teach me how to tell stories and they didn't teach me that in undergrad and they didn't teach me that at Procter & Gamble and they didn't teach me that at Accenture and I worked there too. And like, so some of it was just that, uh, but there, there was a, a, a more singular moment. Um, I, I read a book uh, back in 2009 called uh, Made to Stick. Why Some Ideas Survive and Others Die by Chip and Dan Heath. And they talked about what is it that makes some ideas stand the test of time and, and be successful and other ideas just fade away. And they came up with six criteria, which were that they were simple, um, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional stories. All right? So those six criteria. And the last one there was stories, that they're communicated via a story instead of just you know, telling people, here's exactly what I think and being explicit about your logical thought. Um, and so that, and that one resonated with me. And so I ended up digging deeper into that one and just became fascinated with the topic even even more.
0: Is there a story that you go to more than others that, that's one that you love to share, that you're particularly passionate about, that you like to share with
1: our audience? Well, I have, I have lots of them, but... Uh, um, if you wanted a more personal, I could tell you the story my dad told me that got me to quit my corporate job in my mid forties and go become an author and speaker for a living, which is a crazy idea when you're too young to retire and have a, you know, wife and kids at home to support. And, um, and it's because I developed this passion for storytelling and my first book had just come out and, you know, I was trying to decide, do I go do this, you know, crazy thing or, you know, or, or just keep my head down and, uh, you know, for another 10 years until I can retire. Um, and my dad told me that, uh, when he was five years old, he knew exactly what he wanted to do, uh, for a living. he said, I wanted to be a singer, you know, like Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett or Sammy Davis Jr. Right. He, He was 80 years old at the time. So that was his genre. And he said he knew that for sure. The first day of the first grade, he said, uh, he, uh, He went to class and the teacher asked all the students if any of them had any special talent like singing or dancing or magic tricks or whatever And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm he said I'm a singer, right? I can sing even though he'd never sung in front of anybody But his mom in the kitchen, right? Um, So what do you think John uh, a good teacher would do when little, you know, five-year-old Bobby Smith says that he's a singer?
0: A a good teacher I I would hope would encourage and support
1: yeah, so she did. She said, well, Bobby, sing us a song. <laughs> so, oh, that, yeah,
0: yeah, that part yeah, too, yeah. Right okay. then,
1: so little five-year-old Bobby Smith stood up and he belted out his favorite song right there in front of the whole class, acapella, right? And he tells me, son, I nailed it. I got all the words <laughs> right, all the melody right. I was so proud, got through the whole song. And he said, the teacher and the other students stood up and they applauded me. I got a standing ovation my first time to sing in front of an audience. And he said, unfortunately, that turned out not just to be the first time I ever sang in front of an audience. It turned out to be the last time I ever sang in front of an audience. And he said, someday, son, you're going to wake up, you're going to be 80 years old like me, and it's going to be too late to pursue your dream. And and as if, John, that wasn't enough to do it, and it was, by the way, he closes out this story. This is an email that he's writing me. He closes out this email by saying, I'd love to see you achieve your dream, but that doesn't mean in your lifetime, son. That means in mine. And oh my God, just like, oh, tick tock, right? The guy's 80. <laughs> so um, yeah, pressure's on now. So literally, John, two days later, I walk into my boss's office and I quit from my 20 year career to pursue this dream. And it absolutely was the best decision ever made. And I would not have made it, certainly not that early, had it not been for my dad's story.
0: Wow, wow, I love it. So you got started right away
1: and your dad got to see it? He did, and he's fortunately still alive today at the age of eighty six now wonderful eighty seven sorry eighty seven now um and yeah, so he's gotten to see me uh you know full circle with that um that idea and and be successful with it yeah and and can you imagine i'm still three years shy of being able to hit my retirement age at p and g mm. so if I had not mm-hmm. done that, i'd still be you know he still would not get to see it, and I, you know, who knows if it'll be here three years from now.
0: Is that the most important email you think you may have ever received?
1: Oh, that very well could be. Certainly, the most impactful. Uh,
0: yeah, making a, a difference in my life for sure. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It's so awesome, and thank you so much again, Paul, for for being here and sharing. And I know we have it's it's an iceberg. We're only scratching the surface here. There's so much more that that I think people would benefit from hearing from you. What's the best way to get in touch with you to stay in touch and stay connected and have a conversation with you?
1: Yeah, thanks. So it's probably the best way is my website, which is leadwithastory.com. So there's links there to all my my books and training courses I do and and contact information for me as well.
0: To connect with Paul, go ahead and visit leadwithastory.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn and Twitter or pick up one of his best selling books. Until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. If you enjoyed the show, please let us know. Give us a rating or write a review. If you have a question, send me an email, john at keyconvo.com. And if you haven't already, you can connect with me on Twitter, at keyconvo, and on LinkedIn under John Ryan Training.